Well, who knew that one decision was going to so spectacularly blow up in your face? Right? Well, maybe the person with the blue Highlander. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, David knew that one decision could do that, as we learned this week. And I learned that too this Christmas. Because this Christmas is going to be, in my mind, affectionately known forever as the apple cider Christmas. Well, it started the last 15 minutes of busyness right before I had 10 people coming over for Christmas Eve dinner. You know what those last 15 minutes are like, right? You're rushing from one thing to the next, candles, sour cream dip, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Well, in those last 15 minutes, I realized that I had made a decision. I had thoughtlessly, or without a thought, placed a bottle of Martinelli's apple cider on top of the refrigerator in my garage when I brought it home from Costco. Sounds okay so far, right? I, I had nestled it between two large beverage tubs. And in those last 15 minutes, I decided it was time to use them, both of them, at the same moment. But what I forgot to tell you is when I stored that bottle of apple cider up there, I thoughtlessly decided to put it on its side. Well, you do know that bottles are round, right? And you know that round things roll, right? So that bottle, predictably, rolled off the top of the refrigerator, hit a cabinet, and crashed on the floor 15 minutes before I had guests coming. And I'm racing around, and I hear this distant crash. I think, wow, what is that? <laughs> and of course, I couldn't leave it that way. I discovered what it was. I couldn't leave it that way. I mean, it looked like a bar fight in the Old West, right? <laughs> you know, like, you're going to pick up a bottle, right? <clears throat> so I, out there in my Christmas best, my Christmas dress, I was carefully picking up the big giant pieces and then getting the shop back down off the shelf and spraying the carpet cleaner and wiping down because, of course, there are drops everywhere, right? The tool chest, the carpet, the refrigerator, everything had apple cider drops all over it, right? And you do realize apple cider drops, they might as well be syrup, right? I mean, it's just like one and the same when it hits the surface. Okay, so that's what I did. I quickly cleaned it up. Disaster averted. But it was nothing compared to what awaited me 24 hours later. Because 24 hours later, it's now the end of Christmas Day. Now, Christmas Day was full of all kinds of fun, but you know how it is, also all kinds of work, right? You're exhausted at the end of Christmas Day. We do stockings, we do breakfast, we do presents and gift cards and Christmas dinner, and my wonderful family kindly helped me put all that stuff away in the refrigerator when the day was over. But then one of my family members, who shall remain nameless, I will not tell you who it was, and Alexandra, you cannot tell either, because you know who it was. One of them, thoughtlessly, decided to put the half bottle of apple cider away from me. It's awesome. Thank you. Except that they decided to put it away in the refrigerator, in the house, in the kitchen, half empty, on the top shelf. What is the only way that you could put that on the top shelf of your refrigerator? I mean, I don't know, unless you have an industrial strength refrigerator, you have to do what I did. You have to put it on its side, right? 
The only problem is that there's that little white cap. And that little white cap, well, it's perfect for holding the liquid in when the liquid is upright, like say in your refrigerator door, and uh, it's not, you know, disturbed, it's at peace. That liquid is at peace, standing upright. But just imagine what happens when you don't have it upright, but you have that little white cap and you're expecting it to hold something that is disturbed, basically open and on its side. I can just tell you right now, it is a science experiment waiting to happen. You do not have to go home and test this. It's a science experiment waiting to happen, which I discovered as I was going to bed that night, Christmas day, grabbing some water before I rolled into bed. I opened the refrigerator only to find that the apple cider had exploded everywhere. I mean, everywhere you could possibly see there were yellow syrupy droplets all over the refrigerator. <clears throat> well, you know, you probably would have done the same thing I did. I mean, in a night like that, do you have what it takes to actually face the droplets? Uh, I didn't. So I confess right now, I shut the refrigerator door and went to bed. <clears throat> I am a type A, but not quite that type A. Well, <clears throat> I, do, I, I don't have a fairy godmother. So it was still there 18 hours later after I had slept and had a golf date with the Fabara's men. It was still waiting for me. By now it really was syrup everywhere. But anyway, obviously, that, uh, that little white cap could not handle the 1,200 pounds of pressure per square inch of that supercharged carbon dioxide gas. It wasn't holding it in anymore and it decided to explode on me. And those puddles and drops and drips and everything, goo basically, was on every piece of food, on every piece of fruit, on every condiment bottle, on every Tupperware, on every plastic bag, on every inch, on every shelf, on, on the door, on the top, on the bottom. I, I, I had to take every single thing out and wash it with hot soap and water, which of course took a long time. <laughs> but of course I had to do it. That's what had to be done. The apple cider Christmas. That's what it will be for me. It is not unlike what David faced. He made one thoughtless decision and his whole life blew up. And before you say, yeah, but yours was an accident and his wasn't, think about it. Do you really think that the man after God's own heart thoughtfully made these decisions? Or do you think it in one unguarded, thoughtless decision snowballed on him? and blew his whole life up. That's what I think. I don't think a man after God's own heart would ever intentionally do all of this. It was that one moment, that thoughtless moment. It had a devastating after effect, an aftermath, and he's going to be forced to clean up his horribly ugly, sticky mess of a life today. But because we're gonna see him clean it up, we are going to learn how to repent well. When it is our time to unfortunately make a stupid mistake which might end up blowing up our life. We need to learn how to navigate through that when it's our turn to clean up the mess. David's gonna help us do that. No matter how devastating it is, this chapter proves one thing, and that is that God can help us clean it up. He's gonna help David and he will help us. Now you see there are six points. Just brace yourself. 
There's not very much room, but there are six points. You might have to flip to the backside. Well, anyway, if you haven't turned there already, I'd like you to turn to 2 Samuel 12 as we learn about the apple cider that exploded in his life. David, of course, has sinned. He's sinned with Bathsheba. He looked at her, he sent for her, right? He asked about her, he got her brought to him, he slept with her, then he finds out she's pregnant, he tries to cover it up, and finally he eventually kills her husband. That all happened last chapter. Yay, wow, people who think the Bible is not exciting. That is the chapter for that excitement, right? Well, anyway, starting in verse one, this is where we are. Yahweh sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindred against this man. And he said to Nathan, as Yahweh lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he had no pity. Wow, quite a story and quite a response, I might add. And it's gonna show us our first element that we need to do in order to repent well. Because this account proves one thing in particular. It proves that David was a man with a soft heart. David was a man with a soft heart. We need to be that kind of people too, with soft hearts. God says he gave us a new heart when we became Christians, right? And that heart beats in time with his. But then we have to keep it up. We have to keep up that heart when we walk away from him at conversion and we're walking out into the world and into our lives, we have to keep up that good, soft heart. It's the only way we're going to see sin when we're confronted with it in our own lives is if we have a heart like that. So you and I need to, point number one, we need to maintain a receptive heart. Maintain a receptive heart. I mean a soft heart, I mean a teachable heart. I mean a a heart that listens to God and does what he says. Unfortunately, we're all gonna blow it. We know we will, we have already. We're gonna have to get up, clean up, and move on. But we need to have the right tools and even the right motivation in order to be successful at that. And it means having a receptive, teachable heart. A heart that knows and lives God's word. Mike talked about it this very weekend from this stage. Point number three of his message was obediently love God's commands. That is what a person with a receptive heart does. They know God's word, they love God's word, they do God's word, that's what they are. This is almost a a pre-point one or a point zero for the repent well message, really. If I had had the guts, I would have put zero, but I didn't. So you got number one. But you need to be soft before you step into the next hornet's nest of sin in your life, okay? In verse one, God prompts Nathan to go to David with this masterful little story. I mean, this guy is good. I mean, he just takes him right up to the front door, doesn't he? Just don't you just love it? You just watch Nathan in action. I love it. David has no idea what's coming. (laughs) He's completely clueless as Nathan is honing in. The more Nathan talked, though, the angrier David became. He was angered at the injustice of it all. He was enraged. Of course, he had been a shepherd, so he was going to be sympathetic about the, the guy and his little ewe lamb, of course. But he'd also been tasked with being the shepherd of God's people. So he cared about defending someone who had been so wrongly treated by someone else. It made him furious 
how this other man who had so many animals and so many sheep would not take one of his own flock, but would take this guy's pet and eat him for dinner. I mean, it was so unjust. It was horrible. And he hated what this man had done. In fact, he demanded that it be a capital offense, even though the law only required that there would be restitution. This was egregious. David is livid. And we could see from his example just how easy it is for us to see the sins of others and not see our own sin. I mean, look how quick he is to point the finger at that guy and not recognize that he's the one with the problem. Nathan's sneaking up on him. One commentator put it like this, I love this. He said, Nathan had a sword within an inch of David's conscience before David even knew he had a sword in his hand. He was just like honing in on him until he realized it was him. Do you know what that proves? It proves that David had a soft heart because the minute he realized what was happening, it was like awareness was there. He had a soft heart. It tells us that David was doing what he was supposed to be doing already. He was reading the Bible every day. That was what the king of Israel was supposed to do. In fact, he had his own copy, his own personal copy, so he could read it every day. We can tell that he was seeking the Lord regularly. I mean, we could tell it from the Psalms, but we can also tell it because of the way he responds here. We can tell he was a man of worship who really knew God and loved God. He was a man who had a trajectory for righteousness because immediately when he's faced with unrighteousness, he wants to do something about it. He had a very soft heart. He was ready to take the correction and do something about it immediately. And I'm proud to say that many of you here have that same kind of heart. I was just bragging on you the other day. I was bragging about the unique people of Compass Bible Church because you guys truly love and do the Word of God. You don't just open your Bibles, you actually take notes. You actually want to do what it says. You're actually eager to walk out of here and do it. Do you know how rare that is? We visit a lot of places. It's rare to see how you guys ferociously devour the Word of God and are trying to do what it says. And it's, it's tribute to you. You respond rightly. You're eager to do what's right. You need to keep doing it. You need to keep learning. You need to keep doing the things that you're doing so that the next time someone gives correction to you, you have a soft heart to respond rightly to it. Because one day, sadly, that's going to happen. You're gonna blow it. You're not gonna see it. Someone else is gonna have to come to you and say it. And you don't wanna be defensive. You wanna be open and go, oh, you're right, I am. I am the woman. Not I am the man, but I am the woman. That's me and see the ugliest of your sin. Well, of course, David's gonna take a gigantic detour, but his heart is teachable, okay? He's ready to hear the correction. So you all need to keep doing the right things. You need to keep fighting for your quiet times. You need to keep spending good time in prayer. You need to keep coming here, even when it's pouring outside. And you are, I'm so, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I came to the parking lot and I was a little stressed, I have to say. I was running late and there was no one in the parking lot with me. That's what it seemed like. I thought, oh no, but you're here. But you also need to keep doing things that are harder. You need to keep doing things like getting your kids here to church, to Awana, to revival. I don't care if they have finals, sports, or a job. You make them come. It's your responsibility. You need to keep respecting your husband, even when it's hard, even when you don't agree with everything, even if it's not the way you prefer to do things. You need to keep doing the right kinds of things. You need to keep serving in your ministry post even if people aren't that responsive to you. It's the right thing to do for you to have a ministry post and keep doing it for the Lord again and again and again. 
Do what God says today, and I'll tell you, when you slip, it'll be much easier to go back and fix it if you're already doing what's right. It reminds me of a girlfriend that I have who, due to circumstances beyond her control, had kind of woken up, and we all have this moment as a parent. In fact, we have it multiple times usually. This moment when we realize that our parenting is not quite as sharp as it once was, we realize that we've kind of taken some steps back and we're not correcting and directing our children quite as much as we should be. And she had this moment and she asked me, would you pray for me? I'm gonna bite the bullet, I'm gonna do the right thing this week. Pray for me and my kids. I was like, awesome, yes, I will pray for you. When I checked in on her about a week later, this is what she said to me, and I said, how's it going? She said, it wasn't half as hard as I thought it would be. I was like, yes, rejoice. Because you know what I realized from that? I realized that she and her husband were already doing the right things. They had already been training their children to do the right things. They had already laid down the track of righteousness. They had already been teaching their children about first-time obedience instead of 12th-time obedience. They were already teaching their children to submit to their family house rules without complaint and negotiation. And you know what happened? When she had slipped a little and it was time for her to repent of the sloppiness of her parenting, it quickly went right back to the patterns that she had already laid down with her husband. It was a day to rejoice. It was like, yes, This is great. How much easier it is to go back when the foundation has already been laid, when the patterns have already been laid in your life. So keep doing those right things to maintain that that receptive heart. Yes, we're going to get derailed, and God will send a Nathan, but hopefully we're going to be like David and get back doing the right things right away. David was good at repenting because he was already doing what was right. It only took 61 words for Nathan to convince him. 61 words. How many will it take for you? Hopefully not too many if you have a teachable, receptive heart. All right, let's move on. Verse seven says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you king of Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. If that were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what's evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and has killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun and you did it secretly and I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned Yahweh and the child who was born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. Wow. The mirror has now been placed right in front of David's face. This is tough. He sees his guilt. I mean, he must have been horrified, wouldn't you be? He must have been just grief-stricken at that moment to realize that, but it's exactly what he needed. He needed Nathan to lower the boom so that he would be ready to own what he had done. And that takes us to point number two. We need to take full responsibility for your sin take full responsibility for your sin. You are the man, Nathan said. God had given him wealth, power, position. He'd given him women. He would have given him more, he says. And then you went away and you stole 
the one possession that Uriah had, his beloved wife. It's horrible. But it's even worse when you realize how honorable Uriah was. Uriah was an honorable man who wouldn't even go back to his home and enjoy the comforts of his home because his fellow men were out there as soldiers fighting on the battlefield. But it's even more than that because the Bible tells us that Uriah was one of David's mighty men. That means he was like the elite, the Delta Force guys, the Navy SEALs, which also means that he was the king's personal bodyguard. He was in that level. Surely he knew the king. Surely they knew each other. This, this was unimaginable and it was personal. He only had 30 mighty men. You think they didn't know each other? This is so much worse than just adultery and murder. And not to pile on poor David, I don't feel too poor David right now, do you? But he feverishly tries to cover it up for almost a year. This is not good. But the worst thing of all is in verse nine. Because in verse nine it says, David despised God. Basically he blew God off. He blew off God's commands. For what? Really, for what? A few minutes, what, an hour at most of stolen pleasure. He cashed it all in for that little thing. It just was so not worth it. So not worth it what he did. Now what he did would have been acceptable to all the pagan kings who lived around him. They could easily be adulterers and murderers and no one would have said a thing, but it's not okay with God. It's not okay for God's man to do this. God had been disrespected by David. And he thought he got away with it, but as Heather told us last week and reminded us, God saw the whole thing. And Hebrews 4.13 says it this way. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight. We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that is exactly what David's gonna have to do right now. He has to give an account. He has to come clean. He has to take responsibility. And in verse 13, he says, I have sinned against Yahweh. He's taking responsibility for himself. He confesses it. He doesn't def deflect. He doesn't defend. He doesn't start making excuses like Saul would have and did on different situations where he was confronted with a sin. No, he agrees with God which is exactly what repentance from a real Christian looks like. Agreeing with God that we've blown it. That's what it looks like. There's no long-winded speech necessary. It's about the heart. He repented in his heart, not just with his words. It only takes a second to get right with God because he knows your heart. Well, then Nathan told David what was coming the consequences of his sin, and they would be tragic, they would be abundant. He was a public figure, God had given him a very big stage, and David had dishonored him before the whole watching world. This was God's man who had done this horrible stuff. He couldn't get away with it. Let's put it that way. He couldn't get away with it. So the consequences were definitely going to fit the crime and the position that he had. Nathan said, because you were violent with Uriah, violence will be a part of your family from now on. You had sex with another man's wife, your wives will be victimized by others and they will even be people that are close to you and it'll be a public thing. He says, and the baby that was conceived because of your sin will die. This is tough. But Galatians 6, 7, among other verses, says there is sowing and there is reaping. If you sow, you reap. 
and God will not be mocked. He will not be looked down on. He will not be talked bad about. There will be sowing and reaping. God is just, and the watching world needs to know that. These consequences would be no surprise to David. This is exactly what God had said in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He says, if you disobey me, if you disregard me, if you despise me when you get to the promised land, these are the kinds of things that are waiting for you. Specifically, your children will be killed, your wives will be taken, and you'll be kicked out of the land. Those are three major things God said will happen if you disobey me. Now, two of the three David had to deal with. He didn't have to deal with a third. God did not take his kingdom from him. He took it from Saul for lesser offenses, actually, but he didn't take it from David. David survived, even though this is a capital offense and could have been killed for it, according to the books of, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He deserved death, but God spared his life and he spared his kingdom. I think he did that because David had a soft heart, because he repented quickly and completely, and God saw that. Well, in God's sovereignty, he was going to use David's temptation, sin, cover-up, conviction, confession, and even his recovery to help you and I, not just David, but to help us and millions of other Christians throughout history. Because you see, when David was clawing his way out of this, he also wrote two very powerful Psalms, which you've probably read and, and gone to before, even when you've stepped into hornet's nests of sin and needed recovery from it. And I want you to listen to just a few of the words of David's heart from Psalm 51. And I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes just for a few minutes and think about the words. David is just blown it with Bathsheba. Nathan has just come to him and said this to him. And here's David's heart. Psalm 51, starting in verse one. It says, have mercy on me, O God, David saying, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. and My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in words and blameless in your judgments. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me and restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. In that passage, in that heartfelt prayer of David to the Lord, I think we see a few different things that our taking responsibility needs to look like. ABC, quick and easy. ABC, I think we see from him a wholehearted confession of sin. A wholehearted confession of sin. He doesn't mumble his way through it. He wholeheartedly just says, yeah, you caught me. B, we see him feel the weight of what his sin has done to God. He feels the weight of what his sin has done to God, a holy God, a God who's his father. And C, we see him turn from it completely and pursue righteousness. He turns from it completely to pursue righteousness. Those three things 
wholehearted confession, feeling the weight and turning from it completely. That's how you own your sin. That's how you take responsibility for it. That's what we should do the next time we fall and need to own up to it. And that's the perfect time for us to go back and catch one little phrase that we blew over real fast. One little phrase back in verse 13, 2 Samuel 12, 13. David gives his heartfelt confession. He says, I have sinned. But then Nathan says these eight incredibly powerful words. The Lord also has put away your sin. The Lord also has put away your sin. What that's really saying is the Lord has passed over. Put away is the word passed over. The Lord has passed over your sin, which is exactly what he did when they put the lamb's blood on the doorpost in Egypt. He passed over their house. It's exactly what he does when the lamb's blood is shed on the cross for sinners like us. He passes over our sin because of that. He overlooks our sin because of the blood that was spilled. I know this seems obvious, but sometimes I find that women have a tough time with this point. It seems so simple, but I wanna linger on this phrase for a minute because God offered David a very, very profound gift right here. He offered him the gift of forgiveness. All David had to do was take it. Sometimes we don't take it. That's why point number three is we need to fully embrace God's forgiveness. Fully embrace God's forgiveness. When we sin and we want to come back, we need to fully embrace God's forgiveness. I say that because some of you are tempted to see your sin, confess your sin, turn from your sin, and then sit in your sin. I don't know why women do that, but we do. We just want to wallow for a while. It's not right. When we've done everything that we need to do in order for forgiveness to be given and granted to us, we need to accept it. We're disrespecting the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross when we don't just embrace what he's giving us. When we cross our fingers and say, well, I really hope I'm forgiven, or when we plan elaborate pity parties for ourselves, neither one of those things are good. We need to fully embrace the forgiveness that he offers us. Of course, we need to be sober about our sin, but that was back in, verse, in point two, what we just talked about, taking responsibility. That's when you need to sit there and feel bad and sober for your sin. Now it's time to move forward and fully embrace the forgiveness he gives us. Take the gift he's extending to you. Forgiveness is when the word means to release the debt, when your debt has been released by God for that sin. Just imagine how foolish it would be if a generous person walked up to you this Sunday and said, I'm gonna take over all your student loan, or I'm gonna cancel all your credit card debt. I'm just absorbing, I'm just taking it. I'll write you one big check, it's gone. Or maybe that big medical bill you have for your dad or your brother or your son, I'm just gonna wipe it all out. Or your mortgage, I'm gonna pay your mortgage. How not smart would it be for us to keep making a payment month after month whether we sent it by mail and put a stamp to it and sent it away or we did it, boop, online just like that, we wouldn't be smart to keep paying when there's nothing on the account. Why are we continuing to pay when there's nothing on the account? Christ has released the debt. We need to fully embrace the forgiveness he gives us. It's offensive when we don't. When you've confessed your sin specifically, you need to leave it there. 
just like Christian did in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Christian was the name of the man, so would you hear me read a little of it? Christian is the name of the man, okay, who's going to be forgiven here. John Bunyan says, up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty. Because of the load that was on his back, he ran thus until he came to a place somewhat ascending. It means it was a hill. Upon that place stood a cross, and a little below it, at the bottom of the hill, there was a sepulcher or a tomb. And so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to that cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders. It fell off his back, and it began to tumble. And so it continued to do until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more." Then was Christian glad and lightsome, and he said with a merry heart, he has given me rest from his sorrow and life by his death. And then he stood still a while to look and to wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and he looked again till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. And then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on his way singing. Christian rejoiced in the forgiveness that he had been given. It was a gift he had taken. And we need to do that too. We need to actually believe what God says and take the gift of forgiveness. It cost him a great deal to pay it off for us. We need to embrace it. Because verses like 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he will forgive us and cleanse us. I want you to think, if you, put your name in there, if I, if I, Carlen, confess my sin, you put your name in there. If I confess my sin, if you confess your sin, we will, he will be faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. And Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has it removed Carlen's or Julie's or Jill's or Susan's sin from them. Whatever your name is, God has released your debt. Let's fully embrace that forgiveness. <sighs> okay, back to 2 Samuel. Let me warn you, this part gets tougher like it hasn't been tough already, right? Okay. Verse 15 says, then Uriah went to his house and Yahweh afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. He became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay on the, all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died and the servants of God were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. They said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He will do himself some harm. But when David saw his servants were whispering together, David understood the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he's dead. David rose from the earth, washed, anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of Yahweh or the tabernacle and he worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, what is this thing you've done? You fasted and wept for a child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and you ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether Yahweh will be gracious to me that my child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring the child back again? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. This very sad passage teaches us an important part of the process of repentance. And that is that when the time comes, we need to accept whatever God gives us in the aftermath of it. We need to point number four, we need to bravely accept God's discipline. Bravely accept God's discipline. David knew it was coming. Nathan told him it was going to happen and it did. David's son got very sick, so sick that he was dying. David fasted and he mourned and he begged God night after night on the ground, the literal ground, 
His advisors were hovering around him and worrying about him, especially seven days later when the baby died because he thought, they thought, hey, this guy's so fragile, what if he harms himself because he finds out the baby's dead? No one wanted to be the one to tell him the bad news, but their sideways glances, their quiet whispers told David what he needed to know. The baby was gone. And he got up, he took a shower, he headed over the tabernacle to worship the Lord. Then he came home and he had dinner. And all his advisors were, you know, scratching their head, what's up with this, David? I mean, wow, how come you were praying and fasting and all this stuff? And then now he's dead and, and you're like, you're fine. That's what it seemed like. He explains to them that he had been praying because he hoped, he knew God was good and he hoped that God would spare the boy. But he says, when he didn't, I accepted it, basically. That's what he told them. It's exactly what you and I have to do when God chooses things for us as a result of our sin that we don't always like. Of course, David didn't like this, but it was a result of the sin that he had committed. Eli, who was a priest, was told that he and his sons would die because of sin. And then back in 1 Samuel 3.18, this is what Eli said. He said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Wow. That is accepting the Lord's discipline. He is the Lord. Let him do what it seems good to him. God is God. And ladies, truly, the only thing we actually deserve from God is his judgment, is his rejection, is hell. And you do realize that discipline comes because we have done something wrong. Right? It's not like, no, 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 you're just meandering along and then discipline comes. No, it's because we've done something wrong. It's a result of our sin, which means we need to embrace God's sovereignty without complaint when it happens. Now, I can tell you one surefire way that you can avoid discipline of any kind. It's really simple. Don't sin. Right? I mean, don't sin. You don't want to suffer his discipline, then don't sin. Just say no, as Heather said last week, right? Do the three things she said. Identify your weaknesses, expect a battle, and repent right away. That is the ticket out of this wretchedly painful discipline. That's it. That's a surefire way. David had prayed all those nights because he knew God was gracious, but when God's plan became obvious, David embraced God's sovereignty his sovereign decision about the whole thing. And he went and he worshiped him. Sometimes God's gonna sovereignly choose some consequences for you that you don't like. What should we do about that? <laughs> well, at our house, we say, suck it up. That's what we do. That's the mature grown-up thing to do that we even told our two-year-old to do under those circumstances. This is divine spanking, suck it up right? When you're disobeying us and you're running away and then, oops, you trip and fall, that is the discipline of the Lord. Suck it up, kid. And you know what? That's what we all need to do. When we've blown it and God gives us a consequence, the mature and grown-up thing to do is not, you know, curl up a ball in the fetal position and cry about it. It's to embrace it and with God's help, get through it. He will give you what you need to get through it. Walk through the discipline. God's not trying to hurt you. He's not trying to pay you back. In Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, it says it so well. 
He says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God loves us and he's investing in us when he disciplines us. He says that he wants us to endure that tough stuff because it's an investment from him because he loves us. In fact, Hebrews 12.10 says that he disciplines us for our good so we can share in his holiness and his glory. It hurts. It's paying a price when we sin but it will make us all the more grateful for what we have and it will make us all the more hesitant to repeat that sin again in our lives. Discipline helps us because it says, don't do that again. Remember this. Remember the cost you paid last time. You know, it's it's something that I think back of when I think back of the only time I was ever pulled pulled over by a policeman. The only time in my life. I will never forget it. I mean, I know the car I was driving. I know where I was. I know who was in the car the one time I got pulled over, right? Well, I, 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 yeah, let me just tell you. Let me just warn you. That really nice stretch of road right off of Best Buy, Cabot, you you know that shopping center there? There's a really nice piece of road. Don't get up to speed on that. That's what I was calling. I'm just getting up to speed. <laughs> right? Don't get up to speed there because pretty soon you'll be flying past Bed Bath & Beyond and Krispy Kreme. And it's a 35 there. And I was a doing a 52 and a 35. And, I, you know, I was so clueless that when I got pulled over by the kind officer and he said, why, you know, why, have I, why do you think I pulled you over? I was like seriously thinking, I don't know. Do you see my Compass Bible Church sticker? Do you want to go to, right? Or, or, wait, no, do I have my taillight out? Have I forgotten something at the store and you're trying to help me? I mean, like, seriously, I had absolutely no clue because that nice stretch of road just, I mean, it looks more like, thir- more than 35. Come on, you know it does, right? Okay, well, I was completely clueless and I got a $100 ticket for it. And I had the cost in time and money of going to traffic school. But you know that the worst pain of all was with my two little boys in the back seat got to tell daddy how they got to meet the policeman today. (laughs) Right? It cost me a lot. But you know what? It's something I will never forget. And why won't I forget it? Because discipline was painful that day. It stuck. We need to bravely accept God's discipline. He's doing it because he loves us and he wants to keep us from doing that temptation again. So bravely accept it. Take what he gives you because his discipline is supposed to bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. And it will if you hmm, keep it in mind. Take it to heart. That is not the end of the story though. It's not the end of the story for David because verse 24 then says, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and Yahweh loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord or beloved of the Lord, which is what Jedidiah means. This is like this beautiful little oasis in the midst of a horrible chapter. This beautiful oasis of really, in the middle of really hard things. He sins, he confesses, he gets forgiveness, he turns around 
And then God is still good. He's not done with him yet. He's still good to him. He still blesses him. He's still kind. And we need to take notice of that when, even when we're in the midst of our sin. And that takes us to point number five. We need to marvel at God's goodness despite your sin. Marvel at God's goodness despite your sin. God is good and he continues to be good and he continues to do good to you when you finally get things right. Look at what he does with David here. David goes into Bathsheba because of course she's grieving. She has just lost her child. It would be gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching. He goes in and he cares for her. He consoles her. And uh, in the aftermath of this, God gives the two of them another baby. Like, how gracious is God? And then mind blown, this baby's gonna be the next king of Israel. Okay, these two people, David and Bathsheba, the adulterer and murderer, they get to be the parents of the next king of Israel. My mind is blown at the amazing grace of God in this situation. Any of David's sons could have been king, but it's Bathsheba's son who gets to be king. Wow. Yahweh says he loves this boy. He's called beloved of the Lord and that's his name. It was undeserved blessing. And it's a good thing for us to remember when we've blown it, when we've confessed, when we've turned around and there's, we think there's no place to go but down. But it's not true because God still loves us and God still blesses us. In God's economy, he's a God of second chances. He's a God of fresh starts. He still loves David and he still loves us. We need to marvel at that. Even when we failed, we're not out of his family. This is super helpful for some of us who are kind of a, like a, a one and done mentality. Like I've blown it, I can never be useful to the Lord again, right? Some of you have that problem. You listen to that voice in your head and you think, because I've blown it, I, I, I'm like unworthy of even being a Christian anymore. It's not true. It's not true. God can use you again. God used this situation and brought the next king of Israel. None of us really gets this whole thing here, why David and Bathsheba had Solomon, but it gets even better than that because Bathsheba gets to be not just the mom of the next king, she gets to be in the line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And in Matthew 1 in the genealogy, she is mentioned, Uriah's wife is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, mind blown at the goodness of God. We need to marvel at that, ladies. God is gracious. He's good to us, even when we're paying off a ticket. He's good to us even when we're sitting in Saturday driver's school, you know, traffic school, right? Driver's school. I got a 16-year-old. That's where I got that. He's good to us even when we have to confess our mistakes to our husbands, right? He's still good to us, and we need to marvel at that. Well, that bleeds right into the next and last point of how we should repent well. But before we get to verse 26, I want to remind you of when I was standing up here a month ago or maybe over there. But a month ago when I was teaching you, this is what was happening. It was chapter 10. It was when David had sent the people to comfort 
the Ammonites at the death of their king. And there was that great big misunderstanding and they thought they were really spying on him, remember that? And they shaved their beards, they cut their clothes and they totally shamed David and his men, that freaky passage. And then we were like, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? That whole big misunderstanding thing? Okay, well, David and Joab went and fought the Ammonites at that time. And they pushed them back to the capital city and they went behind the gates and that was it. And they said, another day will come when we will come back and deal with the Ammonites completely and wipe out their capital city. This is that day right here, verse 26, okay? Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name, Joab says, saying, come on, David, it's not about me, you get out here. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And then they gathered all this plunder and they got a large crown and they got a whole bunch of laborers to work in Israel. And from all of this, we see that when sin is over and confession and repentance has completely been finished, it's time to point number six, get back to doing right. Get back to doing right. That's what David's doing here. Get back to doing right. You've been through all the rest of the junk. It's time to get back in the game. David had stepped away from the fight, remember? He stayed home. We learned that in chapter 11, verse one, which is why the whole Bathsheba thing happened because he's walking around meandering on the roof instead of out in the battle, right? Remember that? Now it's time for David to get back to work. Get back to the office, which for him was on the battlefield. No more wasting time, no more idle hands. Get back to work. Get back to doing what's right. When he has dug himself all out of it, it's not time to sit around anymore because there's a job to be done. David needs to go out and do it. So he conquers the Ammonites and he writes this wrong. And that's a lesson that we need to learn too, ladies. I know we feel so bad when we've sinned. We feel that grief. We saw though in remember point number three that we're supposed to accept his forgiveness and point number five that we're supposed to marvel at his goodness. We can't stay in that weightiness forever of sin. We can't be paralyzed by what we've done in the past, okay? If, if some little voice in your ear is telling you, ah, you're not good enough, you're not useful, you shouldn't be taking up that situation or doing that thing, that's, you shouldn't be back in the game. That is not Jesus saying that to you. That is Satan saying that to you. He's the accuser of the brethren and the Bible says he accuses them day and night. But first John tells us that Jesus is our advocate. He's our advocate and he is there defending us. Remember we said he says if you confess, he's faithful to forgive you. He separates you from your sin as far as the east is from the west. He does not want your sin to keep you from today's obedience and today's job and today's ministry. He doesn't want all those opportunities to go by because you're so paralyzed because of some wrong that you've done in the past. He wants us to take the next mountain. He wants to take us the next mountain wiser and stronger than we were before, even because of the pain that we've been through. He wants this for us. He actually expects this of us. He expects us to get back in the game just like David did. Get back to doing the right things that he's supposed to be doing. Jesus may be even pushing you through this very point to get back in the game. Do it. Listen to him. Do what he says. David had messed up. He had participated not just accidental sin, but full-blown intentional sin by the time he gets to the end, right? I mean, full-blown in your face, I'm gonna do this. It was bad, it was premeditated. And then he pitched his tent there and stayed for a while, right? It was bad. But God helped him 
navigate out of it and clean up and on through to the next thing he was supposed to do, the next right thing, which right here was overcoming the Ammonites. He got back to doing what was right. Now, do I regret the apple cider Christmas? You betcha. Absolutely. Would I like to go back to myself a month ago and say, hey, don't put that apple cider on the top of the refrigerator in the garage. Not a good move. Or at the very least, don't put it on its side. Stand it up if you're going to set it on the garage refrigerator. Would I like to go back to my sweet family member and say, uh-uh-uh, don't put the half-empty bottle of apple cider on its side in the refrigerator. It's not a good idea. It will explode. Well, I would like to go back and do it, but I didn't have that option. All I could do is hunker down, clean up the mess, get the soap and water out, roll my sleeves up, and do the hard work that had to be done to clean up the explosion in my life. It just has to be done. Dwelling on the pain of the incident, it wouldn't help me. But getting the knowledge that I learned from those two incidents, very helpful. Now, uh, apple cider is not going to make it to the top of my Costco list for quite some time. I am sure of it. But when it does, I'm going to be much more careful with it. Don't you think? Just like David is. Ladies, we're going to need to work hard so that the next time we sin, we're ready to navigate our way out of it. We got to have that receptive heart. We got to take responsibility. We've got to embrace his forgiveness and accept his discipline and marvel at his goodness. But then we got to get back to doing what's right. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you. I, I, I'm sure that David regrets all of what he did. But I am so thankful for the template that he laid down for us of how to get out of our exploding apple cider bottles. Um, David is such a helpful model for us, and we will forever be grateful. And when we meet him, I hope that we tell him thank you. Because watching him, yeah, it was a bummer to watch him fall last week, but to watch him get up, it's really powerful. And I pray that it would help us to get up much more quickly the next time that we fall. Pray for our groups that they would be good, they would be godly, they would spur each other on in the next week. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.